Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Grandmaster Maurice Ashley is one of the most familiar faces in the modern chess landscape due to his work as a commentator for the St. Louis Chess Club. But his chess career and his story go much further back than many fans know. Growing up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, Maurice came up playing chess in the parks and in raided tournaments, at the Manhattan Chess Club, and on the chess tables of Prospect Park. There he met the members of the Black Bear School of Chess, a group of black chess players who were, who were to have a tremendous effect on his game. Maurice continued to hone his game while working as a coach and a chess broadcaster, becoming an international master in 1993 and a grandmaster in 1999, the first African-American to earn the title. He began to organize lavish events like the HB Global Challenge and the three iterations of Millionaire Chess, and over, over time became one of the faces of the new chess boom, along with Grandmaster Yasser Sarawan and women's grandmaster Jen Shahadi as the main broadcast team for the St. Louis Chess Club. One of the great ambassadors of our game, Maurice is in demand as an inspirational speaker, and he recently became one of the faces of Hennessy, starring in a stunning advertising campaign for the brand. His star continues to rise, and we're so glad that he was able to write our November cover story on the young, uh, on the young Fenham 12-year-old Abhimanyu Mishra. Maurice, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to U.S. Chess. How are you doing, and where are you right now? Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure, John. Uh, I'm doing really well, and I'm in Brooklyn, New York, my hometown, basically, although I was born in Jamaica, but I, I've been here most of my life. So have you been able to travel much during these uh, during this pandemic, or have you been sort of uh, at home just like the rest of us? It's remarkable how little I've moved just from this apartment, much less <laughs> traveling anywhere. I was in St. Louis when the pandemic hit. It stopped the candidates matches, which I was calling at the time uh, with my co-commentators. And I stayed in St. Louis for a couple of months and then left afterwards to be back in New York where I could see my kids for Father's Day. And I haven't left. Okay. Well, we will be talking a lot about your broadcasting career. Um, but I, I wanted to begin by talking about the cover story that you wrote for us, which I've, I've got pulled up on my, uh, my other screen. Um, and I, I have to say you did a fantastic job in in bringing out some of the, the, the pieces of Abby's story that, that maybe aren't as apparent to most chess fans. So uh, let's just talk about the story. What did you write about and what was your, your experience writing the story? Well, when you guys reached out to me to write this story, I wasn't aware of Abby's full story at all. I mean, I just, I, I knew very little, frankly. And the opportunity to be able to dig into the life of this young prodigy and to see his aspirations, his connection to family, they're such a close-knit family, uh, his aspirations about becoming the world chess champion one day. I mean, it's still just absolutely remarkable. And it's often that you hear young kids say, oh, I want to be the best. But the way they're going about trying to execute this is nothing short of stunning. Like, I, I was open mouthed as I was interviewing Abby and his father and his mom. Uh, it was just, it's just a remarkable tale. So one of the challenges you had in, in doing this, of course, was that um, you had to do it uh, over the phone or over FaceTime or uh, something along those lines. I mean, you, you didn't visit them in person, right? No, we did it by Zoom, as it seems like everything happens these days. Uh, it was a Zoom call and I had, I did all three of them separately. So no, I couldn't go into their homes and to their home and actually see how they lived and get a feel for family life that way. I just 
just using a detailed set of questions to try to get as much as I could. How much time do you think you spent speaking to each of them? Uh, I spoke to the dad, him on the most, the longest, which I would say a little over an hour. And then, and then Abby, probably about little less than that. I would say 45 minutes to an hour. And then a mom, uh, Swati, I spoke to the shortest, probably about 30 minutes. And, and what was your sense of their their relationship as a family? I mean, one of the things that I really liked about the way you presented the story is is, is exactly what you said. They're incredibly close-knit. They, they view this as sort of like a team effort. Um, how, how did that how did that read in this COVID era? They are absolutely a team. Uh, team, if, if the word family is not strong enough, which is, I think, even a stronger word, they are so connected vis-a-vis Abby's goals in life. And just it's just remarkable to hear them speak on it passionately even. That's, that's really the thing that struck me the most is how passionate they are about this goal. It's like... It's, it's this larger-than-life desire to be the best right, in the world, and they're doing that as a family, as a unit, whether it's the sacrifices that they have to make financially, and they've got a GoFundMe page that they want people to give support to because they're spending so much of their own hard-earned income to try to make this dream happen, or it's the time investment when Abi and, and, and Himan, the dad, leaves and mom and da- daughter at home and they don't see them for weeks on end as he's playing in tournament after tournament. I mean, it's incredible that a family just showing that kind of full-scale dedication to this goal. And I, after listening to them, I feel like it's a done deal. This kid's going to be one of the top 10 players on the planet. I don't know if he'll be world champion, but th- this is not just some fly-by-night kid who, who just wants to be a chess player. This feels like something different. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you. You, you annotated um, uh, a game that he played against uh, Grandmaster Yaroslav Zarabuk for the for the piece, um, and really uh, a beautiful game. And I thought your annotations brought out the key points very well. But I, I'm wondering if you had a chance to look at many of his games in the build up to writing, and if you had a sense of of uh, his style and uh, his, his prospects. I did not pay too much attention to a lot of his games. I went over a couple more. Uh, I really focused on that one game. It was a remarkable one. And what I was most impressed by was the decisions uh, that indicated maturity that was coming from a 10-year-old. It was just shocking, uh, the patience level uh, and the the real lack of, if I may say, um, the real lack of being fixated, uh, being inflexible, you know, carrying out the principles in a hackneyed fashion. A lot of people hear principles and then they just do them slavishly. But he was creative around those principles and said, I don't have to follow traditional principles or things I might have heard. Uh, I'll go my own way or look at the board in a fresh way. It, there's just just something a 10-year-old should not be doing. And that's something that he seems to just easily understand. Yeah, it's um, he, he's he's really it's it's an incredible story, and um, I, I think you knocked it out of the park with this. So I, I'm so glad you were able to do this Thank for you. us. Um, one of the reasons that I was so excited to have you write this story was that you know uh, I, I I came up in chess in the mid '90s and in New York, and so I, I remember some of your earlier days and and thinking about people whose uh, chess careers were, were very different than than Abby's. Uh, you were one of the first people who came to mind. So I thought for our listeners who who might not be as familiar with your backstory, it might be useful to sort of talk about how you got where you are um, and then and try to think about how it's different now than it, than it was for you growing up. Uh, so you you grew up in Jamaica, correct? Till I was 12 years old. And till you were 12 years old. Um, and you, you talked you talk about this quite a bit in your... Um, your 2005 book, Chess for Success, which I, I pulled off the shelf and had a, had a chance to look at the last few days. It's a book that I think stands up very well to the test of time, you know, being a book that's what, 15 years old now. It's still very readable. Um, so I, I enjoyed getting to, to go back and take a look at that. But in that book, you talked quite a bit about what it was like to come to the United States at age 12. And I, I wonder if you might uh, tell our readers a bit about what that transition was like for you. Well, I grew up with my grandmother because my mother immigrated 
uh, from Jamaica to this country uh, when I was two years old. And I had a brother and a sister. My brother was eight years older, and my sister is a year and a half younger. Uh, These are my mom's children. I also have a brother and sister on my father's side. But the three of us, uh, we live with our grandmother, and our whole aspiration was to live once again with our mom. And she had left because she had this opportunity to come here and save up some money and get make herself official, establish her citizenship, and then be able to do the same for her children. So by the time we got here, when I was 12, it was, it was just like a dream come true already to be with my mom and to, to be living in the United States. I grew up, though, I really had a reality check when I ended up in Brownsville or the border of Brownsville in East Flatbush in Brooklyn. And that was a whole different life. I didn't expect that the U.S. would be that way. I thought I was going to live in a penthouse apartment with a pool on the roof. And instead, I was in the hood <laughs> for growing up uh, with the drug dealers shooting guns at night and, and uh, you know, some other interesting activities, we'll call them, that happen in the neighborhood. And so it was strange for me uh, to make that transition to a new place, a new culture, new weather uh, as well, <laughs> Cold, seeing snow for the first time in my life. But fortunately for me, at 14, I found chess and fell in love with it. And that that really became the lighthouse for the rest of my life. Yeah, so you discovered chess in high school in, in a book. And, and this, is, this is one place where I think your, your chess career is, is a lot different than a lot of young players today. I mean, people are getting started playing chess at four or five now. Um, but you were 14. So what was it about the books and, and, and how did you... How did you sort of fall in love with it? Well, I think chess players, you know, as chess players, we all know chess is the real star. Chess infects you uh, and, and has, be, you know, will be much more lasting than COVID ever could imagine and has a, more of an effect on mankind than it ever could as well. Uh, it, it's just been around for so long because it's a fantastic game. It has the durability and, and the fascination that has kept us all enthralled for for you know, over a millennia. And so falling in love with chess was not really the big story. Uh, I guess the the big story was, or the different story is that I did it at a later age than most uh, grandmasters or people who end up becoming grandmasters did. And that I really just hung out playing in high school with my friends and with guys in the park. I mean, that's normally not how you become a grandmaster. Uh, and when I think about, for example, Abhimanyu's story, he started chess, by the way, at two and a half years old. I mean, that's when he's, his, his dad started teaching him. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I mean, my mom, my mom and also my dad, who, who didn't live with us, but, you know, who I, I saw fairly frequently, neither one of them even knew what chess really was and thought I would ever stay in the game. They just thought it was some side thing and someday I'd get a real job. Uh, so to see to see the differing storylines, it's just it's it's pretty wild. Yeah, I've I've got a five year old, and uh, and you know she she knows daddy plays chess and and chess is his job, and I, I can't imagine teaching her right now. I mean, a, a two and a half year old, it just it, it absolutely blows my mind uh, that that that's when you would start at chess, and but I mean you can't argue with the results. <laughs> well, and also and also I would add, you know, we I'm not the only one, but you know, previous generation. I should say pre-2000, we grew up with books. Yes. And, and books, even for the, to this day, remain uh, something of a delight for me to engage with, even in the age of Kindle, e-books, the like. I, I love the feel of a book in my hand and to be able to read it and digest it and to learn from it. Now, learning from a chess book is very different than being able to pop a position up on your screen you know, go go forward and backwards just through pressing an arrow, uh, being able to use the position and and grab the PGN, put put it somewhere and analyze it at will to do, jump into a database and get millions of games as a reference to the position that you're looking at, and then when you're done, email it to your coach who may be halfway across the world who can then analyze it, maybe using the latest version of Stockfish uh, or Houdini or Leela. And then send it back to you. It's like, what? Man, we were happy just having the latest Shotmatni bulletin from, from the Soviet Union that we were like, look at this, look at these pages. Can we read Russian? You know, it, it's just 
bizarre the difference in, in how approaches are now versus it was you know, just 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, this is actually, this is one of the things that I was doing my research. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you about just in terms of your favorite books, but also um, when you were coming up, there was a lot of discussion about the, the importance of the Black Bear School of Chess for you. And I, I think a lot of people, when they read that, they think, oh, you know, Maurice was playing Blitz in the Park and, and that's what got him so good. But in, in your interview with Tim Ferriss, uh, you, you talked a lot about how the members of this school, all these black chess players, were incredibly studious. They were poring over every foreign language periodical they could get and figuring out what the notation meant and applying it in their own games because they were trying to beat each other. They were they were studying so hard, you know, Rook Endgame books and uh, Shakmati Bulletin, and but it was all in an effort to get better and to beat one another. Uh, and and it's 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 part of a story that that I don't think gets paid enough attention to that, you know, chess books and chess literature today that the, kids don't think about them, but that's how generations of chess players got good. Absolutely, and you know, I re, I remember you know seeing books on the bookshelves of my. My dear friend Willie Johnson, who everyone calls Pop, uh, he's one of, still one of my best friends in the world. He's 18 years older than I am, but we, it's like we're from cut from the same cloth. And I hear his legendary stories about you know, people I've never met, like Duncan Cox, who was part of the heart and soul of the Black Bear School, but he passed away before I came on the scene. And he was one of the most studious. Uh, like from from uh, Pop's perspective, he says if if DC, as they call him, had been around when I came on the scene, then I would have been a grandmaster much sooner because he was the one who was all into the encyclopedia of chess openings and insisting that they all go to chess tournaments and play against the, the best players at the Manhattan Chess Club and the like, and not just try to be more incestuous and, and kill each other. You know, that wasn't important to him. Uh, and and yes, they were extraordinarily studious. Not all of them. It was more of a core group that was much more so. But the others had to tag along and, and learn some stuff too. Otherwise, they wouldn't survive against the more studious ones. So they basically brought each other up higher as a result of their habits. And I came along as someone who naturally liked books. So when I came on the scene, Pop saw me and he just said, okay, that's a live one right there. And he tried to help me as much as he could. But we it was still about beating each other to death. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of collaboration. Uh, it, it was, it was much more belligerence and aggression and, and fighting to the bitter end. And it was great training for the cutthroat world of professional chess. Yeah. That, there was a wonderful quote you had in your, um, your, your talk for the moth back in 2012. Um, when, when you were describing why it was, these group of men called themselves the black bear school. And you said, when you saw a black bear in the forest, it wasn't enough to injure it. You had to kill it because it would keep on coming. And that description of, of uh, my memory of watching uh, you know, uh, Park Chess back in New York is so incredibly accurate. I mean, these incredibly cutthroat games where people would fight to the very bitter end, um, and just beautiful, beautiful chess, the, the way it's supposed to be played. Well, I think the, the real thing about like, the hustler, so to speak, in the park that people don't realize and maybe they do realize it, is that these guys have chosen to make a living this way, mm -hmm. right? This is, not, this is not just some side hobby that they're playing for fun. Those guys are trying to make a living uh, in this, this most intellectually rigorous of activities and playing against other sharp minds who may come along. And, okay, they don't want to play masters and grandmasters because they're not going you know, to survive easily that way. But they have to learn this game and they have to learn the ins and outs and the openings and the tricks and traps in order to play it well. And the black bear school took it a large step further than that. They played in the park because they had fun playing in the park. But when winter came, they were in each other's homes and playing for hours and hours at a time and studying and preparing for tournament play. Uh, so it, it really, the, the heart of it is that what I say is very much was very much on the highest level. They weren't international masters and grandmasters, but they were definitely master level players, strong masters at that. When you think about William Morrison, who, who eventually got rated over 2,500, or my dearly departed friend Ronald Simpson, 
whose rating also broke 2400 and and you know, was a monster at tactical chess. Uh, and I, the list goes on and on. Mark Mears, who passed away, also was over 2200. Ernest Colding was over 2200. So you know we're we're talking about real tournament heavy players. And you'd walk into a park and play them and think, oh, they're just some guys playing in the park and have your head handed to you. <laughs> I, I've had that experience more than once in New York, yes. Um, let's talk about how you rose through the ranks. So um, in the early 90s, you became a national master. You were um, captain of the uh, CCNY chess team. Uh, at the same time, you were coaching the, uh, the Raging Rooks in Harlem. And in 1991, uh, you led them to the first place finish at the National Junior High Championship. In 1993, you became an international master. Uh, do you remember what any of your or your last norm was for that? Uh, it was a tournament in the Manhattan Chess Club uh, in in January of of 1993. I think it was actually on Martin Luther King's uh, birthday that it happened, so it was pretty special. So I started out in chess around that time, and I remember coming into the city to play to play at the Manhattan or the Marshall. And, you know, after 1993, 1994, 1995, um, I remember you were playing at a lot of these, the norm events that were held at the Manhattan or at the Marshall, um, trying to get that grandmaster, the, the, the grandmaster title. And in a lot of these, you were playing with your friend, Josh Waitskin, who you, uh, who, to whom you lovingly refer in the acknowledgements to chess for success. Now you were, you were getting quite a bit of, um, press already at this time for your chess activities, but, I imagine with Josh, it must have been a, a completely different level. What, was it strange to be around someone who was getting that much attention uh, for their for, for things that really were outside of their control? Uh, it wasn't strange. Josh and I were best friends. We remain fantastic friends today. Uh, we were he, he was like my little brother, uh, even, you know, ten years younger. But we were all in with chess, and we warred. There was another level of of battles that took place when he and I played blitz after studying together. We played for hours and hours uh, trying to hone our game. And all right, he got a lot of attention because of the movie searching for Bobby Fisher, which uh, it did come with its, it, in its Hollywood aspects that was a bit of a turn off for Josh uh, because he really was about the activity, the purity of it. But you know, there was, there was all this pomp and circumstance around, around, a movie being made about his his young life and, and you know and there was some pushback in the chess world as well because people are wondering why this guy, this kid who wasn't even a grandmaster getting all this attention so i think it was far more challenging for him than it was for me uh we just had a great time together there was an event in 1997 uh that that sort of crystallized your desire as you explained it to 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 push through and become a grandmaster what was that big event and why was it so important Tiger Woods won the Masters that year, and you know, as as an African American succeeding in a in a sport that there's not a lot of representation, he kind of said to me, like you know, not personally, but from his act, remarkable one, like, what are you doing? Like, why why haven't you done this already? And I've been pushing for years to try to get that title. And I hadn't accomplished it mainly because I wasn't fully dedicated to the quest. And, and part of that was a major part of that in my mind was really finances. Although maybe that's a little bit of an excuse, but you know, I had, I had a daughter by then I was, <laughs> I was responsible for, for you know, being a good husband and provider. And so I couldn't just say, I'm just going to be a chess player. It didn't work. Uh, much like uh, the Mishra family now, realizing that the challenges of financing such a quest, I had that same issue as well. And so I was down for a while trying to figure it out. But thankfully, there was a sponsor. Thankfully, I found a sponsor who happened to be the same person who I worked for while I was coaching chess uh, in Harlem. And his name is Dan Rose. Uh, I, I went to him. I was, it was suggested by a mutual friend that I go to him, talk to him about this dream of mine. And he said, you know what? You've done so much coaching kids. I'm willing to turn that around and help you. And it was his sponsorship that freed me to be able to get a coach and to, to provide for my family and travel the, the world, chasing down the norm. 
and finally about 18 months later getting the title so yeah so that's uh, i believe it was what 1999 uh, at the march manhattan invitational that you earned the final grandmaster norm do you remember uh, who you defeated to get the norm yes adrian negulescu international master from romania uh, he didn't know that that game gave me my title until it was over he when i was when i i finished beating him i must have had a smile that lit up the entire room <laughs> and he looked at me and said why are you so happy <laughs> like what i just became a grandmaster and he was quite surprised but uh he was he was uh, very congratulatory now this, I mean, this was, uh, of course, uh, an incredibly important event for you. But I think for a lot of people, now that you had become the first Black Grandmaster in history, this this was also a an apocalypse event. Can can you talk about what it has meant to you personally, and also uh, what you think it meant more broadly that you were able to have this achievement? Well, personally, when you're trying to become a grandmaster, you're trying to become a grandmaster, right? It's not about skin color, race, religion, creed, all that. It's about trying to become a grandmaster. And I had dreamt about doing that ever since I was a teenager in Brooklyn, reading those books about all the famous grandmasters and studying Tal's games, you know, falling in love with, with chess in, in its entirety, its history, uh, the, the knowledge of the games, the nuances, tactics, right? all of it was just a game that I worshipped, basically. It was, it was a game I was just so enthralled by, and suddenly I was in the ranks, clearly not on the level of the elite of the elites that I was a fan of, but suddenly now, having earned this title, was it was a quest to the top of a mountain that I finally achieved, especially also after all that heartbreak and failing on time and time again before finally doing it. So it was really gratifying, incredibly, incredibly heartfelt, um, seminal moment in my life. At the same time, there were people around me, close to me and otherwise, when I went to tournaments, who recognized that I was going to break a barrier that was an important one within the context, particularly of U.S. society. Uh, and so I'd be getting it from the brothers at chess tournaments, like, you're going to do it, man. You're going to become the first one. Do it for us. Do it for us. I'm like, I'm trying to do it for me. <laughs> but I knew that there was this weight of, of expectation and, and hopefulness and aspiration for me to do it for them, to, to make a statement about what African-Americans are capable of. And the fact that we didn't have a grandmaster walking around of color, uh, well, you know, African-American, or however you define me, by the way, because it's a complex question of African-American, or am I Jamaican-American, or am I black, or, you know, or, like, it, well, clearly I'm black, but, you know, all these definitions that are so, that are so artificial and imposed from, from society's uh, misconception of, of other and otherness, but nevertheless, we understand that it exists and it's a reality in the world that we all have to deal with. But yeah, it, it meant a lot to a lot of people. And I recognized that. And I recognized when the story was being written in newspapers and I was getting interviewed for that particular purpose, uh, that, that it was going to make a difference in a bigger way. And that also there'd be kids who'd be affected by it as well. So uh, as, as much as it shouldn't matter, it matters quite a bit. I, I, I really appreciate that last bit about um, identity and how we describe um, race. I don't know if, if you get a chance now that it's finally up on um, Spotify since we've been having problems with it. Uh, my last, the last edition of this podcast, I talked to Michael Tizerand, who um, uh, wrote a piece about Charlie Gabriel, who's a, a New Orleans jazz player. Mm -hmm. uh, he, that was our cover for uh, September. And we actually spent quite a lot of time talking about this in terms of the context of New Orleans and, and race and, and, and how it feeds into America today. So if you're ever bored, um, might be worth listening Sounds to. Sounds great. Anyway. Um, okay. So we'll get back to it. All right. So um, your playing career uh, was winding down a bit in the early aughts, although you, you definitely continue to play in a lot of New York events. But it seems to me um, that your interests seem to move more in the area of event organization. So in 2005, you were one of the driving forces behind the HB Global Chess Challenge in Minneapolis, 
which had the biggest prize fund in history for an open event at the time. It may still, I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, and then you, you reinvigorated this idea in, uh, in this decade, uh, or in the last decade, excuse me. Uh, in 2013 through 2016, you uh, were one of the, the big organizers behind Millionaire Chess, which featured fantastic playing conditions, huge prize funds. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about why you became interested in event organization, uh, what the challenges are in organizing events like this, and uh, why you think they were good for the chess world. Well, you know, I'm curious as to why I decided to do it myself, given how hard the <laughs> damn thing was to do. Uh, yes. Actually, by, then, by the time I became a grandmaster, I was 33 years old. It's quite a late time to become a grandmaster and have any aspirations whatsoever about becoming elite, an elite player if I, if I had the talent to do that, you know, in part I had a, by that time, I, I mentioned I had a daughter that I was very much involved in her life. And then by 2002, my son was born, and that created its own challenge. I was very much a hands-on father. And uh, my then-wife, she had her own aspirations about doing some big things for herself. And we sort of switched roles, if you will, and I became much more supportive of her achieving her endeavors, which she eventually did uh, in multiples and spades and incredible, incredible achievements that she has had in her life uh, to this day. A fabulous lady. So the challenge for me of being a, a hands-on dad and a chess player was just too much. You, that just doesn't go together. And there's a reason why most chess professionals are in their early 20s and uh, trying to add that challenge to your life is extremely difficult and i and i wasn't the top level grandmaster at that so i wanted chess to become much more well known to the general public i wanted chess players to get compensated in a way that uh, we never could have imagined uh, as players in the 90s and so that's that was a big motivation for me to to begin those kind of activities. I wanted to see a million dollar chess tournament. So the HB Global was my first stab at it and it was only quote unquote a half a million. It's pretty good for an open tournament even today. But the Millionaire Chess Open was really a culmination of the dream that we would have chess be be played at uh, for funds at, at a really high level, compensate players in an amazing way. I mean, the winners for the first two editions got $100,000 dollars uh, it was Wesley So and Ikari Nakamura who won the first two editions. And, uh, and and I was hoping also to bring the amateurs along. So we had big prizes for them as well. I mean, unheard of sums for amateur chess. It clearly was incredibly challenging. I had no idea how difficult organizing would be within the context of my life as I was living it, even more so than as just a chess player caring about myself alone. And, and I was also teaching at the time as well. I was teaching chess in, in schools. So I think I, I can safely say common habit of mine. Uh, I, I fully bit off more than I could chew. And, and so it, it just grabbed my life for about four years. Uh, looking back at it now, it taught me so much about organizing, about what, how long it takes for something to build about the kind of resources you need uh, and and about focusing, focusing on what is really important, prioritizing uh, because it was it, to be an organizer, you have to be an organizer. Kudos to people like Bill Goichberg who've been doing this for decades that that's what they do and they're professionals at it and and they try to figure out all the ins and the outs. Uh, I'm glad to have shed that part. I've had the experience, but <laughs> Thankfully, it's behind me now and uh, moved on to other things. In 2016, um, the same year that the, the, the final iteration of Millionaire Chess took place, you were inducted into the U.S. Chess Hall of Fame. What did this mean to you? Wow. Uh, it, still, it still causes my heart to, to like melt or you know, skip a beat when those words are said. Uh, I... As I said, I've never been one of the greats. I'm not one of the greats. I'm, I'm a run of the mill of the may say weak grandmaster. Uh, I, I'm a fan of everyone who, 
who makes it to the highest level. I know how hard it is to get to this level, much less what it takes to get to the, the highest of the heights. And for me to be sitting alongside some of the great names in U.S. chess history uh, as as having made a difference because I didn't get there just from playing. I, I don't think I would have from just playing or even, you know, making history. Uh, but from everything else that I've been dedicated to about the game, whether it is in organizing major events or bringing young people along of a different demographic than one might might have seen in the average chess tournament back then, uh, or writing books or doing CD-ROMs when that was a thing, and then and then apps and uh, and commentary as well. Getting a chance to commentate on some of the amazing, most historic events of our time, including World Championship match or man versus machine and the like, and the the fact that it, that uh, the committee recognized that I had made a broader contribution to the game and, and henceforth felt that I was deserving of it meant a lot. I mean, the moment I got the call, I had to say that I I really started crying. I mean, it was it was a really profound moment for me. Yeah, you're you you've had such an amazing chess career, and of course, it's still it's still going. So I'm I'm not trying to put a cap on it, but. Um, your career has really spanned a lot of changes in the chess world. Um, a lot of them are technological, you know, the influence of the computer, um, the, the introduction of the internet and streaming media bringing, you know, I mean, God, when I was a kid, I would have killed for the week in chess, you know, bringing, bringing games from all over the world to my, to my, uh, to my email once a week. Um, but I, I'm curious about how you see the difference between the chess world today and when you were coming up. I mean, would it would it have been possible for a kid like Abi to become an IM at such a such a tender age when you were growing up? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think it would be. I don't think it would be possible. I mean, we don't know Abi's level of talent, but I doubt it's beyond Magnus or Bobby Fischer <laughs> or, or you name Gary Kasparov. You name the greatest of the greats of all time, uh, and it takes time. The game takes time to digest, to, to take in all that knowledge, uh, to study to study all those nuances, to compare openings uh, to each other, uh, to the lessons to have access to the to the grandmasters out there. I mean, I you're talking about the week in chess, you know, something coming in once a week. Man, I was happy to get once a month Chess Life magazines, right? It was like, yeah, yeah. You you could have as hungry a mind as you want, but if the opportunity is not there, the data is not there, the knowledge is not there, you're just not going to get that good. That's the way chess is. Kids now have it so good. Can you imagine like databases that are being updated all the time, millions of games that you can cross reference everything you want. You can study the openings of the click of a mouse. You can hear commentary online from the top players as they break down in a nuanced way the niceties of various opening structures, end game technique, middle game plans, and the like. Like, are you kidding? And then you could say, oh, wait a minute, you know, I need a trainer, but I live in, I live in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Who am I going to find? Uh, and bam, at your fingertips, you can get someone living in India or Russia, right? Or France, you name it. What? I mean, we're living in a space age, as far as we're concerned, you know, as as human beings. We're now in that that wonderful Jetsons age, right? <laughs> where, where everything is at your fingertips. Even having a Skype call yeah. seems yeah. futuristic as ever, and kids are able to go on Skype anytime they want with a trainer. So yes, it's very different now, and it's why you see so many young prodigies just blossoming at an early age. Because the access is just remarkable. I guess one of my my only concern when I'm when I hear things like this, and and I agree with everything you said. I, I wonder if there's anything that gets lost when there's such a um, professionalization of youth chess, for lack of a better word. I mean, is it is is there any downside to this, or is it just you know you 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 put a young mind in front of all this data and you watch them grow and feed them as much as you can and and just see what happens or. or is is there any sort of drawback to that? There's a drawback to everything in life. 
Like you name it, there's a drawback. There's no such thing as any perfect system. Whether or not the drawback is deleterious, that's a different question, right? Will it harm the kids? Will it harm their growth in some way? Uh, will it harm chess in some way? I think the jury is actually leaning the other way, that this is really good for chess. Uh, and it looks like the kids are coming out fairly wholesome as well. You look at somebody like Abi Manu, for example, and you say, well, Abi, he's been studying chess since he was like really studying. And I mean, really studying since he was five and a half, right? Like, really? <laughs> I'm not saying he was like having fun with it. Yeah, the, the the line in your story where they they went through Silman's complete Endgame book at six and a half, it just <laughs> absolutely blew my mind. Like, what? So yeah, so eight hours a day, pretty much consistent since since about five and a half six, and it's kind of weird because his family measures these things in half years and even in months. Sometimes it's eerie. <laughs> They're measuring sticks or not? Oh, he was five. No, he was five and a half when that happened. Uh, so. You you may think, well, this kid is going to be sheltered and maybe he'll have some emotional difficulties and the like. And, the, and then you talk to the kid and he's cracking jokes and he's talking about these books he's read and he plays video games. And you, you speak to his parents and they seem like the most normal people in the world, uh, even despite their incredible ambitiousness. Uh, his father you know, works uh, tremendously and has put in a, a lot of sacrifice. And, and mom is just incredibly delightful to talk to and and just seems like the rock of the whole family holding it all together. And you think they're a loving family. And, you know, looks like the kid's going to be okay. He's just trying to become the world chess champion. Okay. <laughs> he's, he's working with that. So, yes, there's something quaint for us older folks uh, who know what it was like, enamored with, with books and magazines and, and imperfect analysis and discovery the joy of the discovery when you could actually analyze something and then find a new move and think, wow, look what I just found. This is a novelty and innovation. Now you just click a button and the computer says, oh, sorry, that's actually not so good. <laughs> and we can refute it just like this. <laughs> or it's, it's actually triple zeros equal nobody's, nothing special about it. Uh, yeah, there's, there's something of that, those glory days lost, but so much more gets gained. I think we will have to see where it goes. All right. Well, let's let's switch gears a bit and let's talk about uh, your your career as a commentator and a broadcaster. I think most people probably know you from broadcasting uh, chess events with uh, with Jen Shahadi and Yasser Sarawan uh, for the St. Louis Chess Club and for the Grand Chess Tour. But you've been doing it a lot longer than that. Um, in fact, I think the first time I heard you speak was at the 1995 Intel Grand Prix at the Borough of Manhattan Community uh, Community College. It was, a, it was a knockout event uh, uh, hosted by Intel where Kasparov beat Ivanchuk in the finals. And I think they had infrared headphones, if I remember. I, I couldn't quite figure out the technology at the time. And you were calling the event with Danny King. Is this right, or am I totally misremembering this? You nailed it perfectly, actually. Uh, but the year, and the year 1995 was actually a year after I began. My first, comment, okay. first commentary gig was in 1994. And I did that one in Moscow, in the Kremlin of wow. all places. And the, the whole way I got started was Bob Rice, who was the head of the Professional Chess Association, who was organizing the event and gotten Intel, along with Kasparov, gotten Intel as a sponsor of the Intel World Chess Grand Prix, which is going to be the thing that changed chess forever. But unfortunately, there was a fallout with Gary and blah, blah, blah. Okay, we won't talk about it. But... <laughs> uh, they, he had, he, we were in Moscow and he said, and I was there because we were going to do a show for Eurosport. But while we were there, the commentary was the same way was over with headsets at the time. And, and they were, they had a booth and the Russians were doing commentary and there were a lot of Americans there. And Bob said, you know, we can't understand any of what's going on because we can't follow the Russian would you mind going up in this booth and we'll turn, change a, a different channel and be able to do it that way? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I went up there and I did my best John Madden impression. Uh, I was doing chess like football or like basketball. People were going crazy. Like, why is he so loud? 
Why is he so obnoxious? What this is a chess tournament, doesn't he know? But I also heard that Kasparov's mom, Clara Kasparova, who didn't even speak that much English, was turning to my channel because it was much more interesting to listen to than the Russian commentators. So I was like, well, if Gary's mom's happy, I'm keeping on doing it the same way. Uh, and anyway, then they found me a partner in, in Danny King, and we teamed up, and we just had some epic times together. Yeah, I, I remember um, as a as a long-suffering Knicks fan, um, I remember you talking about a piece, and you said it was posting up like Patrick Ewing. And uh, that that just burrowed into my brain, and I will never forget it. It was... It was. It showed me that there was a different way to try to promote and explain chess, and and I absolutely loved it. Um, now, now you did quite a few of these events over the over the years. So you did some of these these events with Intel, but uh, you also called the uh, the Kasparov Deep Blue matches, correct? Yes. Yeah, so it was eight events with Intel, and it was great. London, Paris, uh, Moscow, and New York. So I got to go to all these capital cities you know, for chess for the world, world capitals and doing this because of chess, which is just pretty cool. And then I got to do my first commentary gig with Yasser, the first official commentary anyway, because I think we did something in 1995 at the World Trade Center where uh, Gary Kasparov and Anand were playing their world championship match. Then, but then we did something just on our own because I was doing it with Danny King then as well. Then we did something on our own in in this one, the first one in Philadelphia, and then the second one where Gary lost. The first one he won, but the second one to Deep Blue, he lost uh, in the Maclo Hotel. Is the Maclo? Maybe I'm misremembering the hotel, but here in New York City. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds about right, yeah. You called some of these matches, and then um, I, I was there a break between... Uh, these events in St. Louis, or were you were you calling chess events and, and commentating on chess events basically all the way through uh, your career at this point? No, my career was really circuitous that way. There was a height when I was doing all this commentary. And then I did a few gigs again with Yasser when Kasparov played against some other engines like uh, Deep Fritz, or is it X3D Fritz? Right, uh, right. And some, some of those, we did a couple of them on ESPN. But by and large, I wasn't doing any commentary in the arts, I would say, very little. But it wasn't until Rex Sinkfield and the St. Louis Chess Club came back, uh, and they started around 2009, 2010, and then they started doing U.S. championships. And then they called me in uh, to say, we'd love for you to be a part of this experiment we're doing. Yeah, so you, yeah, you, you have you been pretty much with them since the beginning, correct? Yes. So, you know, having watched so many hours of these events... Um, I'm curious if there are any really memorable moments that sort of stick out over the years from your from your time working with St. Louis. You know, it's it's been so fantastic, completely. The professionalism of the St. Louis Chess Club, the joy it is to work around those folks. Uh, you know, Joy Bray and Tony Rich are leaders, just unparalleled. Uh, the the generosity of Rex Singfield and his wife, Dr. Jeannie Singfield, but also Rex's ebullient personality. I mean, you sit around him and it's a laugh a minute. And I really mean a laugh a minute because he has this encyclopedic knowledge of jokes that could just, you could sit down and be entertained, you know, like your favorite uncle or, or grandfather for hours on end. And, and then the team with Jen and Yaz and, and then the whole crew broadcast crew it's been it's been an amazing ride we've loved it and i can't tell you how much we miss each other and being able to hang out work together go have dinners together uh, and 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 actually talk about chess for a living like it's just mind-blowing <laughs> yeah i i was gonna ask you i mean having having seen a little bit behind the scenes of, of how sort of i mean I don't think people understand what a small space it is downstairs at the St. Louis Chess Club and how you guys are, you know, it looks very spacious on video, but you guys are really on top of each other. Um, so you, you've gotten to know each other so incredibly well over the years. And I, I'm wondering, now that you're having to do the same work remotely, where you're, you know, Jen's in Philadelphia, Yaz is in, I don't know if he's in the Netherlands or where he's in. In Hilversum. Hilversum in the Netherlands, yes. Okay. And, and you're in Brooklyn. I mean, how, how does that change things? How does that change the dynamic? I mean, it, it changes everything. 
well, in terms of our dynamic, that would be the audience to to tell. The audience sees the difference between you know, us not being around each other and how the commentary goes online. It seems like that's working out, but it's so fun to be around people. It's just so fun to be around <laughs> yeah. people you like. Uh, like I said, going to dinner together, right? You're 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 making you're having so much fun and laughing that food is like coming out your nose because you're just having such a good time. It's socializing. I think that is something that you cannot replicate in the in the COVID era. The the need for humans to socialize, uh, the fun of being together, being able to give each other a hug, uh, and and look in each other's eyes and and you know, share even in, intimate issues as friends. Uh, that's in in a in person way. That's something that. I don't think we'll ever disappear. We don't want that to disappear. And we can only wait until the situation we have now in the world uh, is, has changed and we can all do it again. Absolutely. Your next event for St. Louis, or I, I should say probably your next five events, are you, are you calling all of the U.S. championships? Four. I'm doing four of them. Okay. So we've got five events coming up in October, uh, five different U.S. championships. You'll be involved with four of the broadcasts. Um, so should we talk a little bit about maybe uh, a couple of them? Should we, should we handicap them a little bit? Do you have any favorites for, for the winners in, in, let's say, the junior events and the senior events? I don't think it's fair for the commentator to oh, uh, interesting. You know, throw that out before the show. Uh, okay. I don't want Yasser or Jen hearing any of this in advance either, <laughs> you know, because they always get it wrong. Okay, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but... We have really talented players, and I got to say, when you look at these events, the chess player, the chess players. First of all, it's great that St. Louis is doing it, and they're putting up all this money again to make it happen as organizers. That U.S. chess has this continuity that we get to to actually have a U.S. championship, even though it's got to be online, and it's not at the same time control as normal. And you know, the the, the purists of the world would say there's an asterisk after after the winner's name or whatever. But everybody's going to be playing under the same conditions. It's the same challenge for all. And it's going to be very competitive. And it's going to be fun as heck to try this uh, in a different setting. Absolutely. So w the thing for me is that the juniors coming up, most of the time they get the opportunity to visit St. Louis, which is now the, the, the new home of the U.S. championships, it looks like for the foreseeable future as well. And to and to be in the soak up that ambiance, to feel like they're they're being treated like stars, you know, staying at a fantastic hotel and and being regaled for their talent. And for the ones who have never done it before, it's unfortunate that they won't be able to do it. And for the ones who have and who love it, you know, it's it's a time of break in the year that you look forward to. So I think everybody's gonna put their heart and soul into it and try to do their best, and then they're gonna look forward and hope. Fingers crossed that we all do it again uh, the same next year in, in the way we usually do. Absolutely. I, I did want to talk about this new advertising campaign with Hennessy. Um, just a gorgeous, gorgeous video I saw on YouTube. Um, I'm wondering how this came to be. You know, uh, good grace of the universe. I just got a, a message from my webpage that said, we would like to talk to you because we've decided that uh, your story is one that ought to get told. A client, I, this is from the ad agency, uh, the client really thinks your story is special. Please get back. And I kind of looked at it half askance and was like, who are these jokers? Are they, <laughs> are they trying to <laughs> play with me or something? So I had a commercial agent from before, and I sent it to her. I said, could you check these folks out? Is, is this for real? And she came back and she said, oh boy, is this for real? <laughs> we need to talk. And, and then she got on the phone and then the whole thing got explained. And bam, all of a sudden, I was finding out that I was going to be the part, uh, a part of, or the next part of the Wild Rabbit campaign that Hennessy does that, uh, that uh, follows and features stories that, uh, that they respect and that they think are people who are trying to push the envelope who never stop, never settle. And, you know, I, I was, I was it. And man, I, I can't tell you how incredible it was. 
and now the, the thing is finally out. By the way, it started August of 2019, so it was quite a journey to it finally coming out, especially with COVID interrupting it and the like. And I had to keep it all quiet at that. It was, it was, uh, I was bursting at the seams to be able to tell the world, hey, guess what? I'm going to be the subject of a commercial on television. But okay, uh, thankfully, I was patient enough and it's finally happened. Yeah, I, I was going to ask about that because I mean, it looks like they they took you to France to to film on location. I'm I'm assuming it's France, um, and of course, as you said earlier when we were speaking, that you know you haven't really you haven't been out of the states since since COVID started. So I assume this must have been ongoing for quite a while, but I didn't realize it had been over a year. Wow. Oh, absolutely. Actually, the commercials with uh, the guy Carrie uh, Jones who was playing me. Uh, as a as a player in the park growing up, mm-hmm. that was filmed in Mexico City in November of last year uh, for four days, and that was awesome. And then after that, in January of 2020, they sent they flew me and had me stay at the Chateau in Cognac, France, and I learned all about cognacs and the whole process from start wow. to finish uh, with the with the water and. And from the grapes and, and the distillation process and the aging in the barrels and all of it. And it was quite an experience, additional experience as well. Yeah, this was all pre-COVID. This, this was, it, thankfully, it all, it all, I had the opportunity to do it before COVID. Otherwise, it just simply couldn't have been done. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, besides the what I'm assuming are the the very nice financial benefits for something like this, I'm I'm wondering what it means to be the face of a big advertising campaign like this. I'm still working on that, to be honest. Uh, it's there's a cool factor, obviously, right? I'm watching the NBA uh, Eastern Conference Finals, and Celtics are playing the Heat, and they take a break, and all of a sudden. Hey, a Maurice Ashley commercial is on. <laughs> That's pretty damn cool. Uh, but, but the really great thing about this that I, I love is that Hennessy embraces excellence. And the wild rabbit in the, in the campaign, you may hear you know, the term, is what's, what are you ambitious about? What's your goal? What's the thing that, you, that wakes you up in the morning? And what's something that, that you wish to do to change the world. That is something that they're all about in terms of their own practice. And they like to find practitioners in different fields who are about the same. And so to be aligned with that is fantastic. And now they're, we're, we're going to be carrying out even more initiatives uh, that center on the same concept. And so this is only the beginning. There's more to come. And for that, having that longer standing relationship with them and to really try to make a social difference in the world, uh, I feel great that I'm not just uh, a campaign commercial, right? It's like going to run on TV and then and people are just trying to buy product, but that we're going to be part of a bigger thing as well. And, and that is really special for me. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, for many years, I was the uh, the book review editor or the, the book reviewer for Chess Life. And as such, I, I have a, a great interest in, in talking chess books with anyone uh, who, who really seems to love them. And, and talking to you today and, and reading about you, I, I know you're, you're just that sort of person. So I'm wondering uh, what your, your favorite chess books were growing up and, and what the most important ones uh, for, for your chess education might have been. There were so many good books. And the one... I mean, there's just some that come to mind, like, like a stream of consciousness, like The Art of Attack by Vladimir Vukovic was <laughs> extraordinary, or My System by Aaron Nimzovic, the Yasser Hate that I love. <laughs> so it's a brave choice you're making. <laughs> I know, and he's probably groaning, you know, thousands of miles away in, in, in the Netherlands. Um, Modern Chess Strategy by Ludwig Pachmann, that gave me some of those finer nuances. Uh, of, of chess strategy, any book on Mikhail Tal, any collection, the life and games of Mikhail Tal is being maybe the epitome of it, but Tal, Tal all day, uh, Alexander Alekhine's both, both volumes of best games, extraordinary. I mean, just that way he dropped bombs on people was absolutely incredible. My very first or one of my earliest books, my dad gave me 
uh, 500 Master Games of Chess by Tartakawa and Dumont. An absolutely brilliant book. Oh my gosh, it was so good. It's so, it, it gave me such a foundation for chess knowledge and history as well. When my knowledge of the classics is because that book propelled me forward to giving me all those names of all those great players. Uh, you want to go into a, a golden age of you know ancient chess history. That book really did it for me. So all of these books I remember fondly digesting, imbibing, just immersing myself fully uh, into the beauty and the knowledge that they they um, they expressed and articulated. But you know there were many others. Reinfeld's books were great. Cherno's book, Logical Chess Move by Move, mm-hmm. and and so if I if I go a bit more forward, one book that I think. Uh, from the more modern era, so to speak, is John Watson's book, Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy. I mean, there's some debates around that, but I really loved that book. And I think that's a more modern approach that this generation would appreciate. Uh, Him talking about the difference between the modern age and like Mm pre-1930s. And and that one I think is wonderful. But, you know, books, chess books, there have been quite a few that have just been really really great and for me i i continue to collect books even though i barely read the books now <laughs> but you know th- that i'm not trying to eat trying to get it better as a player anymore in that way but i i just have so much respect for authors i, I keep waiting for for someone to come along and take a lot of these books that you talked about and 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 translate them into algebraic so that today's young players would have a chance to read them um and it just I keep waiting, but I mean, in particular, you know, 500, uh, 500 master games. What a fantastic book. The problem, John, is young players aren't going to read them. I know. <laughs> I it mean, breaks my heart. It, it, the older, the older generation will say, oh, thank God it's an algebraic. Let's buy it and put it in our shelves. You know, but, uh, the, the younger generation, that's not how they digest stuff. Now it's videos, meaning chess videos, it's apps, uh, it's databases, mm. it's lessons online. It's almost painful for them to go over with a book. And the fact is you have to set it up on a, you know, your position on a chessboard, or even you have to input the thing into, you know, into a database or on, on a board and do it step by step and hope you don't make any mistakes as you're taking it from the book to the screen. <laughs> it's just too easy to do it the other way. If anything, these books could be put in digitized form. Now that mm-hmm. might be what gets young people to take a look. Uh, that would make a lot of sense. And there, there are companies that are doing you know, similar things at the moment as well. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, although I now having heard you say this, I don't think I realize quite what a dinosaur I am. But uh, but uh, yeah, I, I have to think a lot about about my 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 book priorities now that you've said this. Uh, anyway, so last question: What's next for Maurice Ashley? Well. I mentioned the Hennessy campaign that you know we're going to be doing a major initiative around the campaign so people can watch for that. I'm not at liberty to say just yet what that is, but we'll be announcing quite soon. There's a big initiative we're doing on National Chess Day on October 10th uh, where quite a few things will be announced. Outstanding. And so that's that's going to be big and and going to carry me in my direction moving forward. I am going to continue to do commentary. I'm working on chess material right now. I know it breaks your heart. It may not be in book form, but but there'll be stuff to come. People can watch for and particularly an app that is coming out. Yes. Uh, You spoke about the CD-ROM, Maurice Ashley teaches chess. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a new app that is a refreshing of an older app called Match. Again, Maurice Ashley teaches chess. You like the way that works out. It will feature me giving lessons, but it will add a little element of trash talking to, <laughs> to the learning process. And uh, we'll be updating it all the time. So the first one will, will be the basic setup, and then we're just going to be doing better and better and better. So that's going to be coming out shortly uh, as well. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram or wherever you choose. I'm on Facebook as well to find out the news, but it, it's something to look forward to. That sounds great. So your, your website, uh, mauriceashley.com, your Twitter is at Maurice Ashley. And what is your Instagram name? And Maurice Ashley chess. 
Maurice Ashley Chess. All right. Well, folks, you know where to find him and you know what to be watching for. So, Maurice Ashley, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We went a lot longer than I thought we would, but um, I, I think our listeners are really going to appreciate the effort. So, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.